Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 7, Episode 1. I'm Rick, author of Suicide Solution that was just released last, uh, let's see, September. And the year before that, the Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional. Um, And I've been on sort of a kind of a holiday hiatus. So this is the first time in a month that I'm actually recording a podcast. Uh, I think that's the first month break I've taken in seven years of hosting this podcast. And boy, in some ways, it seems like it's longer than seven years. And some ways, it seems like it was just yesterday that my old pal, the Becky Nader and I launched this podcast. Uh, uh, Way back then, um, I thought we should call this podcast the Jesus Centered Life. And Becky scrunched up her forehead and said, that's not a very exciting name, even though that was the name of one of my books. So that smarted, but she was right. Um, And she said, you know, Rick, you're always talking about paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, that that's what our life is really all about. And everything flows from that. Let's just call it that. I said, don't, Becky, don't you think that's a really long and kind of cumbersome name? She said, nope, I like it. So it's been called that ever since. So here's a nod to the Becky Nader. So it is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. And that's what we do in this podcast. We we take a deeper dive into his heart. Uh, here's how this works, by the way. Um, in the conventional sense of the Christian life, what we've been sort of uh, fashioned into is people that uh, believe that... Um, our Christian life is really about trying harder to do better, um, following the kinds of um, dictates and rules and, and values that we think Christians are supposed to have. Jesus made it pretty clear, especially right out of the gate in the Sermon on the Mount, that the massive number of things that you would have to keep in line to um, uh, you know, adequately carry all of these expectations is pretty much impossible for any person to do. Right out of the gate in Sermon on the Mount, he, he tells us all of the things that are blessed, all the things that are expected of someone who, uh, who is living in the kingdom of God. And we quickly learn, wow, <laughs> how, how am I going to discipline myself so well to do all that stuff? We can't do it. And, and uh, he understood that what he really was looking for is he wanted to paint us a picture of what life in the kingdom of God is like and what, how he lives basically. And, and then invite us to attach to him, to become intimately dependent on him in such a way that we get the life of his spirit flowing through us, creating the fruit of everything we read in the Sermon on the Mount. Really, the source of, of our life comes from him. It's, it's sort of like, um, well, let's think of a, I love jazz, as you all know. Uh, maybe the greatest jazz trumpeter of all time is Louis Armstrong. And 
um, we know that Louis, uh, that Louis Armstrong could not produce the beautiful music he did without that horn. <laughs> but where is the life of, of the music coming from? And well, it's coming from Louis Armstrong. It's coming from his lungs and his heart and his mind through that horn. The horn is important. There's no music without it. And the horn contributes to the sound of the music um, and the tone of the music. Uh, of, of course, the horn is, is important, but it's a kind of a, a loose way of thinking about how the life of the spirit flows through us. Um, so Jesus wants to play music and you are one of his favorite instruments <laughs> to play music through. And together we partner with him to create that music. And the music then sounds like all of those blessed things in the Sermon on the Mount. So by paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, we get to know his heart. And by getting to know his heart, we're just magnetically drawn to him. And when we're magnetically drawn to him, we start to become like him, like uh, a Talmud rabbi relationship. That's what happens when you spend a lot of time with your rabbi you start to become like him. We're actually going to talk about this in, a, in just a little bit in this episode. And as you become like him, you actually become more yourself. You don't have your identity lost somehow. It's actually accentuated. This is what we call the progression. <laughs> it's a very simple progression. As we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus and get closer to him, his heart captures our heart. We end up becoming like him and then ultimately more like ourselves. Um, and that's really, really, if you break it down, that's the point of life to continuously become more who you really are. And when you become who you really are, your purpose and role in the kingdom of God and on the, in, and in the world becomes accentuated and um, fueled and empowered. And, and you have the kind of impact that your soul has always been longing for. That's the generosity of Jesus. As we draw near to him, he empowers us to live out our true identity in the world. So with that as a lead-in, this is the, the seventh season of this podcast, and it's the first episode um, of this new year, and, but it's also the seventh episode of an ongoing focus I've called Jesus in the Real World. And I thought we'd just uh, recognize where we're at right now, midway through January. Um, we are all still thinking about uh, who we're becoming. And the new year gives us a chance to reassess um, what we did or didn't do last year and what we're hoping to do this year and what changes we want to make, what areas we'd like to grow in. It's a very unusual time. We don't usually self-assess. Uh, why? Because it's uncomfortable. Uh, we don't like taking too close a look at ourselves because it's painful, <laughs> right? But our focus has shifted away from that sort of holiday hubbub that we were in and some of the sacred spaces that we enjoyed during the holidays. And now we're, we're in sort of gear up mode again. And that makes resolutions a part of our menu as we start off 2022. But here's an interesting thing. Um, New Year's resolutions, whether you like to make them or not, um, 
this whole idea of making commitments to change or improve certain aspects of your life, do they seem worthwhile to you or not? I know there's, you know, it's, it's kind of a cliche joke that we all break the resolutions and we wink, wink, make them, but um, never keep them. But are they worthwhile? I, I think in, in some respects, the, the idea of self-assessment and thinking about where we would like to grow, that on the face of it is a valuable thing where you could argue on the other side of that question is um, most of these commitments we make are based on our own self-discipline and strength of effort. And that's where our guilt and disappointment come in. <laughs> um, we, we idealistically believe that we can change more just based on our own self-discipline than we really can. But here's an even bigger question. I call this uh, an impossibly big question, an IBQ. Are New Year's resolutions consistent with the way of Jesus or not? I mean, making resolutions about our growth, is that consistent with the kingdom of God, with, with the way of Jesus? I think you can make a case on either side of that as well, if what we're really doing is trying harder to be better. I mean, the whole book of Romans, um, Paul, uh, brilliant uh, strategist and argumentative uh, person that he is, he just destroys the notion that somehow we can try harder to be better. The whole book of Romans is basically his, his legal, legalish case um, for why that, that can't happen. But Jesus also very shrewdly, consistently, tried to raise the bar so high with people that they understood that at least he hoped they understood that the only way they could, they could clear that bar is through their dependence and attachment to him. Think about the rich young ruler, for instance, there's a guy who says to Jesus, he's done everything right his whole life. What else does he have to do to guarantee himself eternal life? And, and Jesus says, well, I'm here's, here's something sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And the guy couldn't do it. It was just too high. In every case, Jesus is always raising the bar, not because he's trying to prod us like a, like a, a fierce coach to just put out more effort. He's trying to help us to understand that the way, our way of life and our path forward is attaching ourselves to him who already has all of those things and will share them with us in a close, intimate, relational attachment. So are resolutions consistent with the way of Jesus? I, I don't think so if they're based on our own self-discipline and trying harder to get better. Are they consistent with the way of Jesus? Maybe so, because he definitely wants us to be thinking about what, uh, what isn't yet realized in ourselves. I mean, he, he honors this underlying longing that we have to move toward wholeness, a fully realized self. Um, Jesus understands that our personal narrative has been corrupted. Um, a thief, he says in, in one of his parables, has snuck into the field at night and planted weeds in the field. And now the weeds are growing up right along with the wheat. Well, that's a pretty good picture of our own self-narrative. Weeds growing up right along with the wheat. We wish we could pull those weeds and grow more wheat. We have a longing for that. 
just as the 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 farmhands in his parable had a longing to get rid of those weeds. Um, so he knows that in our personal narrative, we want to get rid of the weeds and move toward wholeness, a fully realized self. And we want that personal personal narrative to, to move toward a place where it feels satisfying and progressing toward what Jesus said was perfection. <laughs> so remember, one of the hardest things Jesus said was, but you're to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Wow, perfect. Are you kidding me? Okay, so talk about putting the bar as high as it can go. That's as high as it can go. For those of us who are perfectionists, we know it's not possible, but but there's something in us that says, uh, yeah, but you know, it might be possible. <laughs> so when Jesus says you have to be perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect, it seems impossible. But for some of us, we think oh, we got to keep moving in that direction anyway. But what is he really tapping into when he says this? Well, I think he's tapping into that longing for wholeness that we all have. And that's why he uses that word perfect. In the Greek, that word means complete or fully realized in its intended function. So that, I think, helps us to kind of put our arms around the word perfect a little better. We're all moving and longing toward um, becoming the kind of person who is fully realized, um, we, we, uh, a, a person in full, a whole so if our life is an adventure story, we want the hero or protagonist of that story, which is us, to triumph over evil, right? And our own brokenness and emerge into a rich and satisfying life where we, our identity is fully realized and we feel more whole. It's almost like we, we want the, the flower to grow up and bloom. That's what we want. Um, we want that sense that our life is not uh, dismantled and broken, but whole. So I love this scene from the classic movie, The Princess Bride. Um, I, um, most of us have seen this sort of iconic film, but uh, the story is, is it really begins with a, a grandfather who comes to see his grandson when his grandson is sick in bed. And he brings along a book called The Princess Bride to read to his grandson. And his grandson is not excited about this. Uh, it sounds like the kind of book that he doesn't like, like a romance. And he's very, very suspicious of his grandfather reading this book to him. And he has kind of the typical grandson-grandfather relationship. I mean, he tolerates his grandfather, but he's a little bit embarrassed of his grandfather. And now he's shown up with this adventure story he's going to read him, and it doesn't sound like the the kind of story that he he's going to like um but in the in the narrative of the princess bride uh as the grandfather reads the story you see the story that he's reading and it's it's actually an, an amazing um adventure story uh with uh a hero named wesley who is uh underappreciated and everyone uh discounts him. He's an underdog. And the underdog turns out to be an incredible hero. We love these kinds of stories. And so in the, in the film, the grandson gets totally captured by this story. 
Um, but late in the story, as the grandfather's reading it to him, the hero, Wesley, um, is captured and tortured, and he appears to die in the story. I mean, the way the story reads is he does die. And um, it's such a shock to the system um, to be uh, deep into the story and getting to know the character. And he's obviously the hero and, and heroes in our story. Um, they have a narrative path that we expect to follow and death isn't part of the path. And so right at the height of the story, it appears the hero has died and that the evil villain in the story, Prince Humperdinck is still alive. And this, this just seems incredible. So the grandson interrupts his grandfather reading the story to protest that the story can't be turning that direction. So I want us to just listen to this scene and then we'll talk about it afterwards. You're going to hear the grand, you're going to hear a little bit of the scene from the, from the story, the adventure story when Wesley is lying on a slab of rock, apparently dead. And then you're going to hear the grandson break in and talk to his grandfather a little bit. So here, let's listen. Grandpa, grandpa, wait, wait, what if Isaac mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Wesley's only faking, right? You want me to read this or not? Who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo who? Nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. You mean he wins? Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? All right. Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? <laughs> that is our interior reaction. So the question is, why is the grandson so bothered by the ending of this story? And I think that it, the, uh, it taps into something universal in us. We have planted in us a redemptive storyline that seems good and right to us. And ultimately, we want all of our stories to have redemptive good in them. If we, if we uh, read a story or watch a film that doesn't have a redemptively good storyline in it, it's unsatisfying. And it's not just because we're cheesy people and we want cheesy storylines. It's because this is embedded and in, in hardwired into us as human beings that we long for redemptive storylines. We want that hero to triumph over evil. It's built into us. It's baked into our cake, so to speak. And so when the story seems to betray the most fundamental narrative truth in our life, we react with disbelief. How can this be? It can't be. There's quite a bit on the line here, uh, really, when you think about it. Um, if if we had no expectation of redemptively good storylines in life in general, in our own life, ooh, how deep, how deep our darkness would be, how hopeless we would be as people. Human beings have an enormous capacity for hope, and it's because we expect the story to turn out redemptively good. We expect our heroes to triumph over evil. That's what we expect. And when it doesn't happen, we're caught up in dissonance and, and we're 
determined to find answers as to why this has been so. And we look for that redemptive storyline. We want the story to turn out the way it's supposed to, with the hero fully realized, whole. So uh, in light of that, we, we work hard to try to improve ourselves, to make our story turn out the way our long, longing is leading us. And we use resolutions and our own self-discipline and our own agency to get at that. But here's something St. Clair of Assisi says that is just always uh, struck me. I think this is one of the best quotes I've ever put in any one of my books. This quote from St. Clair of Assisi. Here's what she says. We become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Imitation is not a literal mimicking of Christ. Rather, it means becoming the image of the beloved, an image disclosed through transformation. Let me just read the first part of that quote again from St. Clair. We become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. I think this is, you don't get any more deeply true than that statement. We become what we love. And that means the stakes are pretty high when we decide what and who we love. Um, if she says, if we love nothing, we're going to become nothing. If we end up loving things, we'll become like a thing. And Jesus, Jesus says it a little more succinctly in Luke 6. He says, the student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. The student who is fully trained will become like the teacher. He doesn't say the student who is fully trained will have the knowledge of the teacher. No, he says the student will become like the teacher. And this is really, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, what the Rabbi Talmud relationship looked like. Uh, that I, I wrote about this extensively in, in my book, Spiritual Grit. So if you're interested in exploring the Rabbi Talmud relationship and how it changed, changed people, um, get a copy of Spiritual Grit. It, it, um, it uses that uh, sort of mentality or progression all the way through the book. But essentially what it meant was that uh, a, a young man who was, had done well at school and was considered a possibility of continuing their educational training could, when they were a teenager, um, basically lobby to become attached to one of the rabbis in their community. And to do that, the student had to make their case for why they might be a good attachment. And if they were selected, if they had the good fortune to be selected, they then had to leave their family which meant also leaving the family business, whatever that was, and go and move in with that rabbi. And their life was not just about academics. The life that they were about to live, everyone knew, was to uh, learn to imitate the life patterns and life habits of their rabbi, to, to um, mimic and mirror back all of the ways that the rabbi lived his life so that eventually after years um, under the leadership and tutelage of their rabbi, they literally become a miniature version of that rabbi. They, the, their, their habits, their, their sort of quirks, all those things would have been informed by and formed by that rabbi. So that's what it meant 
to become a student. So when Jesus says the students who's fully trained will become like the teacher, he, everyone who heard that at the time would have understood him to mean not just that they'd have the knowledge of that teacher, but they would be like that teacher. And remember how we started with the progression. We pay ridiculous attention to Jesus because then we become conquered by his heart. His heart conquers our heart. And as that happens and we get closer and more intimate to him, we start to become like him. And as we become like him, we become more ourselves. That's the end game that Jesus has. He wants us to become fully realized. Uh, he wants that narrative, that redemptive narrative that is deeply embedded in us to, to be fully realized in our life. So that promise of becoming fully realized means we are transformed. But the world offers alternate paths to that transformation, right? There's self-help and as we've talked about before, discipline, trying harder to be better, lists and checkboxes and programs and accountability and just in general, trying harder to be better. And as Dr. Phil says, how's that working for you? Well, we all know the answer to that. It's, it's so obvious that it's become a cliche you know, joke around this time of year. So what if, what if we turn our attention to Jesus, the only one who points us to a path that leads to real transformation. We call this path discipleship. Discipleship, or in some cases, we call it faith formation. Discipleship and faith formation is the process of becoming like our rabbi, becoming new. So in the new year, with the new you um, that we long for, uh, the path toward that is discipleship. And I I love the way uh, Portland pastor and best-selling author John Mark Comer um, sort of breaks down a, a simple understanding of what discipleship is based on this Talmud rabbi relationship. Um, I'll put a link to his, uh, his like seven-minute video called Discipleship in the First Century. Uh, I'll put a link on our podcast page for you so you can go look at his short explanation of how discipleship works, because I think it's excellent and simple. So the framework really is if, if you're following, if you, if you decide to follow Jesus, the first step is to be with your rabbi. Be with is the focal point. How do we be with Jesus? The second thing that we do coming out of being with our rabbi is to become like our rabbi. Uh, we begin to do the things our rabbi does. That's the, actually the third step. As we become like our rabbi, we start to do things like our rabbi does. That's the third part of this progression. You can see how, how it sounds simple, but it really is a process of being reformed. When um, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, uh, the Pharisee, and Nicodemus asks him, well, how can I how can I become fully realized, essentially? And Jesus says, well, uh, every person has to be born of the flesh and of the spirit. And you've already been born of the flesh, but you still need to be born of the spirit. You need to be reborn, born again. Um, that formation process, a growing up process, needs to start all over again on the spiritual side. So yes, you've grown up into a middle-aged man in the flesh, 
but now you're going to be a baby in the spirit. You're going to be born over again in the spirit and you'll have to be formed um, into maturity in your spirit. So that's what it means to be a disciple or to enter into discipleship or faith formation. Be with your rabbi, become like your rabbi, then do what your rabbi does. So let's, uh, let's take a little plunge into those three, uh, in, in, into the life of Jesus um, and his interactions with people with the thought that these three lenses, these three things are happening in the life of that person. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to, to go a little bit further afield in this episode and read something outside of the Gospels. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 10 as an example of Peter encountering Jesus. And on the other side of that encounter, he is transformed because of his own discipleship path and his and the influence of Jesus in that path. So, um, so what we're going to do is read all of Acts chapter 10 aloud here. It's uh, an encounter that Peter has with Cornelius, who is a Roman army officer, who's a God-fearing, God-believing Roman army officer. So it's an encounter between Peter and Cornelius and the spirit of Jesus. Um, it's a fascinating story. Again, I want you to think about those three filters. How do you see being with your rabbi showing up and then becoming like your rabbi and then doing what the rabbi does? How does that show up in this story? And we're going to start by just remembering St. Clair's words. Who matters most to you says the most about you, right? Who matters most to you? Um, uh, let me just read you the quote exactly as it, as, it, as it is here. We become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. We become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. So just remember that as we enter into this story. So Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. Well, one afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. <laughs> so this is a Roman officer, army officer, by the way. So the, it, no matter who they are, when anyone ever encounters an angel of God, they have the same reaction. <laughs> terror. It's just so when you encounter the supernatural in, in reality, not in a movie or a book, when you encounter the supernatural in reality, it blows your mind. And yes, that's what happened to Cornelius, the Roman army officer. So he, he manages to respond. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. Well, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Can you imagine that story? Hey, guys, guys, I have a, 
I have a favor I need to ask you. I need you to go on a mission for me. So here's what's happened. An angel just showed up and told me to send you all to Joppa to call on a guy named Simon Peter. <laughs> Can you imagine listening to this story um, and not thinking that Cornelius might have lost a screw or something, but they have tremendous respect for him. And so they go off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius's messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon and he was hungry. But while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the sky open and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. And then a voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Well, no, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. Just let's pause there for a second. Uh, it's hard to overstate what a huge deal this is in this moment. Peter had grown up his whole life knowing that to serve God and to honor God with your life, there are certain things you have to do as a good Jew. And one of them is to not eat impure foods. The Old Testament law made that very clear. You're also supposed to, not supposed to hang around with pagan people or Gentiles. They were also unclean. Hanging around with a pagan, like for instance, a Roman army officer, uh, would have been unthinkable. It would be like to Peter eating something consciously that he knew was impure. It just was never going to happen. And it was almost like breathing this belief system. This is what they had grown up with. There was no other option outside of this. So when Peter says, no, Lord, right away, it's just knee jerk. How could he possibly even consider this? I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. In his whole life, he's never done it once, is what he's saying. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Hmm. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Three times. Uh, God, apparently, Jesus apparently wanted to make sure that Peter got the message. <laughs> then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Well, Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then, the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I've sent them. So, uh, again, what we're getting here is a, uh, an interaction that is fueled by trust. Uh, Jesus expects Peter to trust him, even if it means going against every fiber of his being. Um, that's what Jesus is expecting of the intimacy in their relationship. Trust me, Peter. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? They said, well, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews, and a holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he could hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. Oh my goodness. Already, Peter is doing something that he never would have done before. 
he invites these pagan men to enter his home and be his guests and stay for the night. He's already acting on what Jesus has asked him to do. And then it continues on in verse 23, the next day, Peter went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. Peter's just stating the obvious that everyone knows. (laughs) But Peter says, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now, tell me why you sent for me. And then Cornelius gives him the story of what happened to him, that the angel approached him and gives him all the detail of what had happened. And then Peter, in picking up in verse 34, Peter replies, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what's right. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. Now, you know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. So now they have firsthand evidence, not just that Peter had been instructed through his vision to reach out with this gospel message to those who had previously been excluded from it, but not only was he doing that, but there was obvious evidence that Jesus himself was pouring himself out on these Gentiles. He had had not held himself back in any way from these Gentile believers. For, it says in verse 46, they had heard him speaking in other tongues, heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him him to stay with them for several days. So. They are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They are fellow disciples and brothers now. There is no difference between them. Um, All of this centuries of built-up walls between Jews and Gentiles just come crumbling down in this. And where the walls crumble is inside Peter's heart. That's where the transformation 
has to happen. That's that's really where um, all of this uh, sort of tipping point in history is located, right inside Peter's heart. Because before his encounter with Jesus, he had one way of understanding his narrative and the narrative he was living out in the world. And on the other side of that interaction, that whole narrative changed. The, the expected outcome of that narrative changed as well. So uh, what? Uh, let's think about this question of how we see these three progressions lived out in this story between uh, Cornelius, Peter, and the Spirit of Jesus. The first is to be with your rabbi. The second is to become like your rabbi. And then the third is to do what your rabbi does. So when Peter sees this vision on the roof of his house, it's, it's some kind of dream. Uh, tran it says he goes into a trance, um, but he's praying. That's what he's doing. And when I say praying, we often think of prayer as simply, he's just asking Jesus for stuff. But actually prayer, Peter, Peter was praying in the way that, that he saw Jesus pray and the way he was taught to pray by Jesus, which is conversational. It's a, it's a relational act to pray. So Peter was going up on his roof to have some friend time with Jesus, to, to talk with him, to sense his guidance, to sense his intimacy and his presence, to remember himself in the reflection that Jesus gives him. That's what Peter is doing up on that flat roof. He's praying. He's spending intimate time with Jesus. Um, and he falls into some kind of trance and he sees the sky open up and this sheet come down and there are all sorts of animals. And then he hears the voice of Jesus say, get up, Peter, and kill and eat them. And that's a, a profound statement to Peter, kill and eat these things because it violates, again, every sinew of his being to do that. And Peter responds just the way Jesus would expect him to. No, <laughs> I've never done anything like that that's impure and unclean. And the voice of Jesus comes back and says, don't call anything unclean if God has made it clean. So Peter is sensing and hearing the voice of Jesus clearly in this moment. Um, and as he is with his rabbi, spending um, unhurried, silent time with his rabbi, quieting himself to both um, hear and respond in his relationship with Jesus, to invite the voice of Jesus into his life as he is doing this, as he is being with his his not only his savior but his closest friend Jesus, um, he he uh, is exposed to something that Jesus says is true. If if I've called something clean, then it's clean. So it's not just Peter's not just hearing a command here; he's hearing Jesus describe something that's true about himself. And about, the, and, and about the perspective that God has. Um, Jesus has called this man, Cornelius, and really by extension, his whole household, clean. Why? Because Cornelius has given himself over 
to worship God. He's, it's not just a, a pragmatic decision he's made or a, a pressured decision he's made or a culturally accepted decision he's made. None of those things are true. He's made this decision because he believes uh, in the truth of who God is and what he has come to do. So even as a pagan Roman army officer, he's not only committed himself to God, but the evidence of that, the truth of that commitment is in his prayer that he also is gravitating to spend quiet time, intimate time with God, but also in the way that he lives out his life in giving generously to the poor. Um, he is living out the truth of his transformation, and it's obvious. And what God says to Peter is, hey, this guy's heart has changed because he's given it to me. And when people give me their heart, I transform it. So his heart's clean now, Peter. And nothing about his ethnic background um, matters because only the heart matters, Peter. And when I've made the heart clean, it's clean. So uh, this whole thing repeats three times. So Peter gets four times of being with Jesus and hearing this sort of earth-shaking thing that Jesus is saying, that, that cleanness comes from him, not from uh, the Jewish patterns of restriction. Uh, that's where cleanness comes from. So he gets, it, uh, he gets four bursts of this, Peter does. And uh, because Peter at this point has been living his whole life um, becoming into what he has seen in Jesus. Uh, he spent so much time with him at this point that uh, a lot of Peter's rough edges have been sanded off. A lot of the darkness in him has been exposed. Um, a lot of the ways that he has held on to that aren't uh, reflective of the kingdom of God or of Jesus' heart have been exposed and challenged. And Peter has become more like Jesus. And in becoming more like Jesus, what does he do? Well, um, he says yes inside. <laughs> to become more like Jesus means to say yes to the transformational influence and presence he's bringing into your life. To invite yes over and over again. Yes, I will change. Yes, I will lean into this. Yes, I will follow what you've just said. Yes, I will trust your heart above my own. Yes, I will trust what you're saying more than what I've been instructed my whole life. Yes, yes, yes. Becoming like Jesus means saying yes to him. So Peter says yes to the spirit, and then he acts. And the acting part, the doing, the doing what the rabbi does, um, the rest of the story is Peter confirming the transformation that's already happened inside of him and acting out of that transformation is very important because that's when it moves from private to public. So when the transformation has happened in Peter, it's all private on that roof. But when he walks down those stairs from the roof, everything's public. So, um, so the, the spirit tells him, you know, I want you to go downstairs and, and leave and go with them without hesitation. And 
uh, and reaffirms that, that the spirit of Jesus has sent these men to him. And so the first act of doing what the rabbi does is Peter going downstairs, finding the men and saying, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? He's saying yes. And then he's acting on it. And they explain who they are and, and why they're there. And um, uh, Peter says, okay, why don't you stay for the night? It's too late to, to travel back tonight. Stay for the night as my guest. It's another act of invitation and generosity and hospitality, inviting these pagan men to stay for the night. He's already acting on what Jesus has told him is true. And then the next day, he brings along some of his friends and they all, uh, they all head off to Caesarea where Cornelius is waiting for them. And he enters his home. He enters Cornelius's home. Again, something he should never do. I mean, again, Peter's acting on what he's knowing, what he has already said yes to. And Cornelius falls at his feet, worships him, but Peter <laughs> pulls him up right away. It's like, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I'm a human being. Um, and they talk together and they go inside to meet with all those that have been waiting for him and assembled, assembled. And Peter reminds them, he wants them to know that he's under obedience, not the obedience of a slave to a master, but the obedience of a lover to a lover. He's under the obedience of the heart of Jesus right now. He wants them to know that this is not a minor thing that he's doing. This is a major, major thing that has happened. So he tells them, you know, it's against our laws for a Jewish man like me to enter a Gentile home or to even associate with you. But his first proclamation is, God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Whoa, what a massive thing to come out of his mouth. Now he's, so, so he's saying out loud what was true in the quiet. He's proclaiming to the public what he already had heard in private. That is a massive act of um, cementing the transformation that's happening. When you bring it from the darkness to the light, when you start to tell people, here's what's happening. I remember um, many years ago, I'd been toying with losing weight for a long time, uh, right around this time of year. Um, and um, like most people who want to lose weight, you long to do it, but the discipline for it always comes up short. But the health club that we belong to was running a competition and the winner of that competition got a full year's membership at the health club, which would have really helped our family. So I was really starting to think about it because now I had a carrot to go after. And, but it was all quiet. I didn't want to say it out loud because that would mean that I was committed then if I said it out loud. And I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be held accountable <laughs> To it. If, if I spoke it out loud, I would be. But finally, at the dinner table one night, I told my family what I'd been thinking about. I was about 40 pounds overweight at that time. And I told them that I had been exploring this and that I was going to join, join up, and that I needed their help because I was going to be spending more time at the health club than I had before. And I wanted to change my diet. Um, I wanted to start eating in a healthier way, like my wife had always been eating. So I, when I finally told them this at the table, that was the point at which my private yes became a public yes, right? And that's exactly what Peter's doing here. He's telling the assembled crowd, look, here's my misgivings about this because it's against our law, but 
I came without objection. I'm going to do this. We're going to do it right now. Um, so, uh, so Peter affirms all of this and says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what's right. So he in turn then extends the grace of Jesus to all of them. The Holy Spirit falls on all of them as they hear the basic story of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Holy Spirit comes upon them and it's obvious that this has happened. And then Peter does the ultimate. He says, I think these people need to be baptized now. The baptism, uh, you know, it's the, it's the last shoe to drop because this is the, the baptism is a public statement of commitment to God and, and entry into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, that this public statement is, is like uh, getting your degree at a university. It's a piece of paper, yes, but it's a public acknowledgement of a, of a transition of something that was and now is. Um, and that's what baptism is here. And so in this last act of courage and of following through in his yes, Peter says, these people need to be baptized in the same way that we were. So this progression of transformation of becoming the new you, it starts with simply settling in to be with your rabbi, to attach to him, to spend time, to, to mull, to cry out, to invite feedback, to have a conversation, and to be quiet enough and patient enough in the quiet to have that happen. And as, as we do, and as we hang out, and as we get to know his heart and pay ridiculous attention to him, we become more like him. And then the seal of it is when we begin to act out of what we know is true as a result of those first two things. If there's something that we know is true, then the acting on it is the cementing of this whole process. And that's what leads ultimately to transformation. Now the transformation is being lived out. Now there's, there's accountability because you're living it. I, when I made this public uh, commitment to lose weight, now I was accountable. And there was a beauty in that accountability once I entered into it. It helped to affirm and fuel my, my choice and my momentum toward losing weight. And I ended up losing 40 pounds in the end because I established new habit patterns and a way of thinking and a new lifestyle. And uh, you know, it wasn't discipline all the time. It just, I eventually I ingested a new lifestyle that led to life change and transformation in me. So let's close off here by just remembering St. Clair's words one more time to go back to what she said one more time to remember what this looks like. We become what we love and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Imitation is not a literal mimicking of Christ. Rather, it means becoming the image of the beloved an image disclosed through transformation. And Jesus' PS to that, the student who's fully trained will become like the teacher. Let's enter into this year as a, as a year of becoming fully trained. Let's walk the path of disciple to be with our rabbi, to become like our rabbi, and then to 
do what our rabbi does. All right, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from rickwants.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks.